it's very easy for governments around the world to, to, to sort of assume that they are the ones who govern. They are the ones who make decisions. And this consumer boycott has, has been a pretty clear example of the citizenry of a com- country saying, actually, no, you, you represent us. And when we demand change, you will hear us. Welcome, everybody, to the 21st episode of Global. JT, how are you doing today? Great. How about you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Welcome, Travis. I know that, you know, you've been doing this. Well, this is the only first my, time with me. Right? This is only my second one down, so. That's Still good. a learning experience. Got Morocco on the menu today. Yeah, they're a great and fascinating country at the crossroads between lots of different civilizations and regions have played a pivotal role in history, kind of marking some of those changes. Today, we're going to really discuss... A lot of those changes that have come about in the last 15 years especially. Yeah, the reform process, a lot that's going on in Morocco. People don't always follow very closely uh, some of the political reforms that have occurred in the country. Uh, but there are sig- some significant lessons to be learned and some trends being set that um, even uh, its Arab neighbors should be watching very closely. Definitely. And one of the great examples that it can provide its neighbors is also just the impact that civil society and different groups can have in pushing and promulgating some of these uh, reforms at a higher level. And of course, we've seen the decentralization experiment in many countries, uh, transitional reforms. When democracies undergo changes, we often see countries turn to decentralizing, bringing power and influence closer to the people. But of course, it's not just about putting words on paper. It's about making it happen. And I think... um, Morocco is an example of going through a process, certainly some pluses and minuses there, and we'll learn more about that today. Definitely. Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, Global is a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices on one country per episode. If you have any feedback, corrections, or even compliments about our commentary on this episode, please reach out to us. You can email us, that's podcast at iri.org, tweet us using the hashtag, hashtag global podcast, or share your thoughts in the review section. Great, so let's uh, get started and introduce some of our guests. Today we've got Imara Krooms, IRI's very own resident Morocco expert and in-country program director. IRI has worked in the country since the late 1990s. Mara and the eight local staff we have there implement programs focused on a range of topics, including governance, youth inclusion, and civic participation. So second, we have uh, Dr. Sarah Yerkes, and she is a fellow in the Middle East program, um, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace She served as a foreign affairs officer for the State Department, was also part of the policy planning staff there. Uh, Dr. Yerkes also really is a passionate sort of observer and analyst on Morocco. So we look forward to her contribution. And wrapping it all up, we've got Eamon Shiragi, a social and political activist. Eamon is the president of Simsim Participacion Citoyenne, a nonprofit in Morocco that uses information and communications technology to support citizen participation in public affairs. He's also an advisor for the Tariq Ibn Ziyad Initiative, which helps Moroccan youth to be informed, effective participants in the political process. There's a lot of a lot of reform going on on the African continent. Morocco is part of Africa, for those of listeners who might think it's part of the Middle East. This um, is your area of expertise. This is, this is my area. Of course, the last podcast episode was on Ethiopia. This one's on Morocco. Uh, both, again, countries going undergoing uh, significant reforms and changes in the past several years. Uh, but let's get started on this podcast. Yeah, let's dive in. Sure.
Amara, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, an absolute pleasure. As the in-country director for IRI's Morocco program, could you give our audience a little bit of background on some of the more significant democratic developments in Morocco's recent history? As I'm sure you can imagine, that's a pretty huge question. But I think in the context of contemporary Morocco, contemporary Moroccan politics, uh, some of the most important things to really, to really note are, of course, the 2011 Constitution, um, the revised Family Code, which was a huge deal for uh certainly the rights of women in Morocco, um, and the National Initiative for Human Development back in 20, 2005, uh, which in many ways is like a key underpinning of so much of Morocco's democratic progress today. Certainly one of the key focal points of the, of the current king, Mohammed VI, to make this work. So I guess I can tell you a little bit about those. Sure, if you want to just get a brief explanation on a couple of those. With, when you have conversations with just about anyone about Morocco, about contemporary politics, the 2011 Constitution is like the foundation of, of all of that. It, it sort of paints the picture for modern-day Morocco, lays the groundwork for the rights of civil society, the responsibilities of the governed and the, the governing people, and certainly enshrines a sea of, uh, of key freedoms um, for half the population being women. Could you comment a little bit on like what some of those changes within the Constitution were? Some of the biggest ones uh, are, are, first and foremost, I guess the uh, legitimization, to some degree, of the, uh, of the government. Um, they're handing over a number of, of governing responsibilities from the king to, the prime, to a prime minister. Um, the sort of limitation, uh, or I guess the, the guarantee of uh, political power in the hands of elected people within Morocco. Also, for you know, for women, there are those those rights to inheritance, uh, limitations on old standards around uh, polygamy, really freedoms within both the household, but also within political and public sectors. There's quotas that were created for women in legislation, as well as young people. And while some might argue about the efficacy or the the desirability of quotas, I mean, there's there's not much argument that they're not working. They're creating a space for, for women and young people to be involved in politics and uh, to represent people directly. Has Morocco seen a bit of an increase in citizen participation um, in local level governments due to some of these constitutional reforms? Yeah, of course. That's one of the key components of not only the 2011 constitution, but also the, uh, the political changes that have occurred since then. So much of Morocco's Contemporary progress is about decentralization um, and localization of, of governance. Um, at the most basic level, communal councils, there are these participatory mechanisms that are you know, enshrined in the Constitution, they're enshrined within uh, organic law, and these are the mechanism that ensures that Moroccan people, through, the, through uh, civil society, can engage directly and in, in their own governance. How has um, public service provision and employment and some of these changes that were at the root of the protest, how have those changed since the Constitution? So, um, Morocco's kind of always struggled with uh, these long and lasting issues of uh, uneven economic development. Back in 2005, the king had set, uh, set up this National Initiative for Human Development, which was created with the purpose of ensuring like better distribution of Morocco's economic development. This is one of the overarching principles of, of his reign, one of the long-term goals. Historic governance and localization of governance is seen as like a potential solution for inequality, for making certain that decisions are made in like a representative and needs-based way at the local level. 
within this this push, there was a focus on urban poverty, uh, rural poverty, which is a very different problem, and focusing especially on empowerment of marginalized and vulnerable groups across the country. Um, and all this sort of reinforced this trend of developing civil society in Morocco. Um, as, as all of the country's development has become more localized, you see this birth of like a sea of civil society organizations. And all of these civil society organizations engage at a, at a really hyper-local level in ensuring that the development that happens, that the, de the development that's driven by government, is informed by the, the needs and desires of the citizenry. Gotcha. What are some of the things that organizations like IRI are currently doing to help address these challenges? So much of the work that IRI does, but not, not only IRI, uh, IRI and organizations like us in the country, uh, so much of the work that we do really focuses on uh, local governance, civil society, and really bridging those gaps, making sure that these organizations are coordinating and collaborating with each other, ensuring that the statutory mechanisms are really functional, and also helping to develop sort of social and cultural changes that will empower these uh, these statutory mechanisms to work over time, and, and that will strengthen sort of the connections that have to exist in order for democratic governance at a local level to really function. So, so much of our our work is about working with existing local government entities, civil society organizations, citizens at, at large, uh, to ensure that the the rights that exist within the Constitution, which I mean, to be frank, are pretty rich. Morocco's Constitution on paper is amazing. Um, to ensure that those rights are actually matching up with the, the realities of how governance and uh, citizen engagement is ha happening on the, on the ground. So some of the recent activism and protests has been centered around economic complaints. And recently, we've seen in Morocco the consumer boycott. Could you tell us a little bit about like why it started and what is it that people want to see changed with this? It began most directly as a result of rising prices on some common staples during Ramadan. But why it started is, a, is really a much bigger question. I guess the easiest answer is that, uh, you know, these pressures build over time, and now and again they find an outlet. Uh, the boycott is the most recent and perhaps the most effective outlet. This is all about, you know, issues that the entirety of the world is really struggling with right now. Uh, these issues of inequality, um, economic and social cultural change, uh, disdain for elites, which, you know, that, that exists everywhere. And ultimately the call for action, the call for change, is all rooted in this idea of breaking the tie between wealth and politics, which anyone who's studied any of this could tell you is a hard bind to break. The sort of cultural and political disdain for these disconnected individuals who are shaping the future of the country, that ends up being a pretty big portion of driving the whole debate around the boycott. How's the government responded to, to this pressure? So this has changed a lot over time, actually. Um, initially, it wasn't too great. Um, a number of political figures made pretty public denunciations of protesters belittling their concerns. And gradually, fortunately, uh, things as if reason is really winning out there. Political leadership is coming from a place of understanding. There have been a number of really sort of positive public statements made, uh, as well as frankly, some pretty huge concessions. We've seen those concessions uh, in the, the private sector, since this is a consumer boycott of products, you know, from Danon, one of the three companies boycotted. Uh, we've seen public statements about addressing uh, the concerns of the Moroccan populace. We've seen promises made about limiting limiting the, the, the cost on the consumer end of, of milk, at least in the short term. Uh, and this really 
this overarching commitment to hearing the, the concerns of the Moroccan populace. Similarly, although there haven't been any public comments from the company, we've seen pretty bold moves to limit the overarching profit, the profit margins of companies that are selling uh, selling gas and energy to the Moroccan public. That's a huge concession, and it's a really meaningful one. That might be hard sometimes for people to to recognize, you know, people who see their options as limited, people who see this movement and, and don't necessarily know how it will end, but that's a pretty huge concession to occur as a result of a, of a widespread and, and kind of leaderless movement calling for political change. Definitely. Can you, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about the implications for political and civil stability going forward after this boycott? Yeah, I think the biggest overall implication is that this is yet another reminder that the citizens of Morocco have power and agency and that they, they can demand change. It's very easy for governments around the world to, to, to sort of assume that they are the ones who govern, they are the ones who make decisions. And this consumer boycott has, has been a pretty clear example of the citizenry of a com- country saying, actually, no, you, you represent us. And when we demand change, you will hear us. That's a pretty huge deal. And one subject that comes up whenever I discuss the subject locally is this uncertainty about whether or not it's feasible to actually change politics to the higher levels. Uh, what amuses me is that in so many ways, I think that the rest of the world can really look here to Moroccans as, as an example of how one demands their rights and makes themselves heard. Hmm. What are some of the lessons that uh, like can be learned for sustainable democratic development efforts in the region from the Morocco experience? I think one of the most important uh, lessons we've learned is the, the need to work with existing structures. One thing that makes me really happy about working here in Morocco is that uh, in so many ways, the Constitution and the rights that, that it guarantees are solid. There are institutions that have been created, and the challenge that we face is how to work with and strengthen those institutions so that in the long term, they can do this work rather than us do this work. So many of the partners that we work with here are government organizations. They are rapidly growing more and more advanced. They're getting better at answering the, the demands of the citizenry without needing our support. And ultimately, we are here for that support. We are, the, the structures that are doing this work exist. Uh, they just sort of need help. I think that another of the lessons that can be learned of Morocco is that there has to be an effort made to constantly listen, to listen and hear the public. All of Morocco's steps toward decentralization, I think, fit very well with that. These attempts to create a space for the public to engage in political discourse at the very local level, I think that's a really meaningful change and is a meaningful step toward a long-term resolution of some of these issues. <laughs> Dr. Sarah Yerkes, we welcome you here to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So you have an extensive academic and professional background with civil society in Morocco. Perhaps you'd give us a little bit of flavor or insight into the state of civil society in Morocco at the moment. Sure. Morocco has had traditionally a more vibrant civil society than a lot of other countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And as I'm sure we'll get into more today, particularly when it came to the Arab Spring, Morocco's had a really strong tradition of protest. I see. They've allowed protests to occur in a way that's been very beneficial 
to civil society, but primarily to the monarchy. Uh, And so civil society has, since really the beginning of this current king's rule in 1999, civil society has played a very important role. Things have kind of ebbed and flowed as as the Arab Spring unfolded in Morocco. There was sort of a high point of more civil society engagement and things are starting to roll backwards. Really, But in general, I think, you know, if we look around the region, civil society is doing pretty well and has a role to play in the political process, has a role to play in informing the public, in helping to deliver goods and services and kind of play all the traditional roles that civil society tends to do in the region. Well, let's take it back to 2011, the 2011-2012 protests. Give us a little insight into the factors driving those protests, the role that civil society played, and uh, sort of uh, how they were received in that space by the people and, and the, you know, in driving the message. Sure. So the protests in Morocco that took place really mirrored those across the rest of the region. I mean, the issues that the protests were demanding were things that were primarily economic. So you had issues of inequality, something that really resonates today as we see massive protests in particular regions of the country. There's vast differences in the way services like healthcare and education are delivered in the north versus the south versus the central versus the center versus the capital. Um, this was a big driver of the, the protests that were primarily called the February 20th movement. This is a group that started on February 20th, um, shortly after the revolutions had taken place in Tunisia and in Egypt. Uh, other concerns were human rights issues. So police brutality was a big one. Corruption, which again is something that still resonates today. And then there were also some political demands. I mean, the important thing about Morocco is that the protests never called for the king to be removed or dismantling of the monarchy. So, you know, Morocco is a little bit of a unique situation in that where you saw Mubarak toppled, you saw Ben Ali toppled in Tunisia. That was never a demand of the protesters. They were really asking for more incremental changes, things like devolving power to a parliament, having more power for elected officials, some judicial reforms. But again, these are all kind of secondary to the economic concerns, which were the main drivers of the protests. So I, I to give you a little information on, on myself, I actually was in uh, Egypt for IRI for about nine months, uh, starting in June of 2012. Oh, wow. And... Uh, so the big – June of 2011, sorry. So the big issue that I saw from civil society there was that um, they were still trying to figure themselves out. You know, when you go through this massive social change, political change, uh, it's hard to know what to do first and sort of where to go. Who were the driving players in civil society at the time who were sort of pushing the direction? And, and how, how did they sort of galvanize the rest of the groups? Sure. So I think, you know, again, where Morocco was a little different from Egypt is that in Morocco, you had had this constant stream of protests. So, you know, prior to the revolution, sorry, prior to the protests, I'm used to talking about Tunisia, where it's like the revolution, prior to the pro- prior to the February 20th movement and the Arab Spring and other countries, you would see every single day, or maybe not every day, but, you know, most days you go out in Rabat and you would see people protesting in front of the parliament for a variety of issues. And this was allowed. You know, it was controlled. There were red lines that you couldn't cross, but you didn't have that in Egypt. I mean, and certainly you did not have that in Tunisia. The difference between the way that that civil society, if you look at it more as a network of individuals, I mean, that's the other kind of difference. Again, you had these government-sponsored NGOs that operated in Morocco. You also had those in Egypt and a little bit in Tunisia. Um, But in Morocco, you had more sort of real civil society, more authentic civil society that existed and was allowed to exist within a controlled space prior to the February 20th movement come into place. Um, a lot of the groups that were the more powerful ones originally were human rights groups, 
This is in part because the king, this current king, King Mohammed, when he came into power, he made this a big priority. He set up the first ever Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the Arab world that investigated crimes his father and his father's regime had committed. This was a really big deal. So human rights groups were empowered in a way that they were not. You certainly didn't see that in Morocco or or excuse me, in Egypt or Tunisia. Um, You know, so some of the human rights groups, women's rights groups were also pretty powerful. But the people who drove the protests and the people that still are driving the protests and the activism today are really more of a loose coalition of individuals, a lot of them from the north, the traditionally neglected region, which today, again, is having ongoing protests. So you see that it's more kind of individuals coming into the street, not the organized civil society groups who were largely co-opted either by choice or by force uh, by the government early on. Uh, let's so let's talk a little bit more about reforms. Um, we've heard a lot about um, the focus on decentralization, and we've seen that as an outcome in a number of countries, including those that went through the Arab Spring that maybe are still on a reform path. Not all of them are. Um, can you talk t- a little bit about, from a technical perspective, the reforms of decentralization, how they deal with this issue of government authority, bringing government closer to the people? So the Moroccan program of decentralization is something that they call advanced regionalization. And if that sounds a little bit confusing, it's because it is, and it's not completely clear to most Moroccans, as well as myself, of what what exactly this means. So one of the things, um, when you talk about decentralization, you're looking at basically two factors, which is economic decentralization and political decentralization. They've made some progress on both fronts, although not tremendous progress. Uh, on the political front, they have they held regional elections a few years ago, but it's not clear what the power of those elected officials are. Um, they have not really made any efforts to um, financially decentralize. So the decentralization process, much actually like the constitutional referendum, the constitutional um, the new constitution that was put forward in in 2011, uh, much of the de- decentralization process has actually just been stalled. So it's there on paper, but it's not actually being implemented. Uh, and one of the things that you've seen is that you know you have to you can't just have this law on the books. You need organic laws that put it into place. Uh, this is the French system, and a lot of the organic laws just haven't been passed that are needed to actually make decentralization come to fruition. Um, and it's also you have this this same sort of tug of war or this pull for power between the central authority and the local authorities. It's very difficult for central authorities to give up power. They obviously don't want to do that in any case, not just in the Moroccan case. And so what you've actually seen in Morocco in a few cases is the central authorities pulling back and trying to actually exert more power than previously. You know, while while the local authorities are not empowered, they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. And so the end result has actually been more centralization rather than decentralization. So, you know, there hasn't been too much. I mean, one example of this is you have all these regional development agencies, and a lot of decentralization is about getting better goods and services. There's a large part of Morocco that is very poor, that has very bad health care, very bad access to water, um, very poor education systems. So part of decentralization is to fix that, is to try to bring better goods and services to the people. But the regional development agencies are underfunded. Again, it's not clear what their powers are. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then so the central authority, the central development agency, the national development agency steps in instead to say, OK, well, we're going to take over so you guys don't, don't know what you're doing, which negates the whole purpose of decentralization in the first place. Sure. So, of course, decentralization at the heart of it is this issue of service delivery. Mm-hmm. Key to service delivery, of course, is accountability uh, of, of these local officials now. Um, but of course, they need money. Yes. And as you mentioned, this issue of defunding or not having enough funds, 
uh, to do the work. And we've seen this in so many other countries where they write a great law, they put it in their constitution, and then there's no money. Right. It's an un- you know, unfunded right. mandate almost. So what is it that civil society is doing today to sort of push and help make sure that these reforms come to uh, reality or at least changes are made that reflect reality? Um, and also how is that – how are they getting citizens involved? Because, of course, they can pull the government into it as well. Right. So one of the things um, that civil society can do and has been effective in is sort of serving as a watchdog. So as I mentioned early on, one of the issues that we've seen in Morocco is that we're actually seeing some rollbacks of civil society. There have been more and more threats against uh, the media, against civil society organizations, arrests, things like that. So the environment is sort of chilling for civil society, which means they're not, for good reason, not taking the same risks that they could have taken maybe a few years ago. Um You know, so one of the things that civil society can do again and and has done is to just pay attention. And so what they can do is record what's happening, pay attention particularly to corruption. When we talk about the need, the vast difference between different regions as far as the amount of the money that they have, Um, you know, Morocco is a success story in the sense that they've had very – compared to other uh, countries in the Arab region, they've had very positive um, economic development since 2013. Uh, so, you know, you do have some areas like Tangier, for example, which is in the north, traditionally disadvantaged region, has had a lot of economic development. There's a new port there. They've, they're building a high-speed train. They've had a lot of these really kind of flashy, big economic development projects. But when you dig into it a little bit, what you see is either there's corruption or the people who actually live in that region aren't the ones who are benefiting from it. Um, you know, there's some reports that really these these development projects benefit either international companies or international investors or the tourists who come and are the ones who are going to take the high-speed train. It's not going to be the local person in Tangier who's taking the high-speed train. Um, so you have some of this uneven development. What civil society can do there is, again, pay attention to this and inform the public about what's going on, you know, act as this watchdog, especially when there's more crackdowns on the media, you know, using sort of informal methods like Twitter, or Facebook, Internet, and also then working with international partners. I mean, I think civil society can be the voice of the people to the Moroccan government, but also to international governments to say, hey, like, this is what we've seen, this is what's happening, and we want to make sure that people are aware of it. And when the situation gets really bad, I mean, we've seen this even in in the most repressive places like Egypt and Bahrain, civil society activists can just kind of keep a record of what's going on. When there's eventually a time for them to be able to report on it, when the media situation is a little more free, then they have that record that's saved, especially if, you know, if you get to the point where you have some sort of reckoning, some truth and reconciliation commission, civil society can be the ones who keep that record. Mm -hmm. Do you see civil society... Uh, playing a role in partnering with these local governments now that maybe are starved for cash and, and need, they need a partner, you know, mm-hmm. and I think about uh, my Kenya experience and the, the de- devolved system where you have these new local county governments, they come online and they need, they need help. They don't have enough assets, they don't have enough training, they don't have enough history, but mm-hmm. the civil society folks have been on the ground looking at this stuff forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how could those partnerships take place if they, if they can exist? Absolutely. You know, I think that there's a big role for civil society and local governments to play. And again, also with the international community. I mean, this is an area where I think the international community, and not not being paid to say this, but IRI does a great job here of, Thank you. <laughs> of, um, <laughs> you know, of, of assisting civil society groups, but also local governments. I mean, one thing 
it's not necessarily our, our normal form of U.S. assistance or European assistance, but to work with local actors, kind of bypass the national the national government, particularly in countries like Morocco that may have are less transparent at the national level. But, you know, working with civil society partners who are better connected on the ground, um, you know, you have this situation where you really have you really need to find the local actors, but whether they're government or civil society who know the situation, if you want to have the best kind of service delivery, the best participatory governance. I mean, this is another aspect of decentralization that Morocco has not achieved so far. Part of the goal of decentralization is to have more participation by the people, to better connect the people to their government. We haven't seen this play out yet. This is where civil society can come in also and kind of train the people that you have the right to ask your local government for this information. You know, you should be demanding town halls. And if there are town halls, you should go to the town halls and say what you want to say. Uh, these sorts of things that civil society actors can, again, be that bridge between the people and the government, and particularly at the local level where, depending on the case, it can be a lot easier to do that. Um, and just to be a lot more effective if it, if it is local civil society groups that actually really know the situation on the ground. Well, uh, Mr. Chiragi, we are very grateful for you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I hope that uh, put some insights and some ideas that might be useful. You have a lot of experience as a civic activist working on issues like youth political empowerment and citizen participation. To start off, could you talk a little bit about what inspired you to do this kind of work? It started in my university studies. You know, in Morocco, you get in touch for the first time with the political sphere inside universities. These are the places where young Moroccans build their political awareness, the institutions, the government, the political parties. The political parties are also present inside universities. They have, like, their student branches, etc. You know, being a student, I always wanted to participate somehow. I started in the civil society field with, you know, student-oriented projects, but not very politically oriented until 2011, you know, with the Arab Spring and the protest movement in Morocco. That time where me and a bunch of my friends, we decided to put our legs inside the political sphere. We launched an NGO called TZ, Tariq Ibn Ziyad Initiative. And the first activity we've done was produce a guideline for citizens on the elections of November 2011. The first elections after the amendment of the recent constitution and the participation in those elections was the most important thing that we need to do in order to start this new democratic transition. So you mentioned a little bit about the Arab Spring and how that catalyzed a lot of action. Could you tell us a little bit how the Arab Spring impacted how you view the role of civil society within Morocco? King Mohammed VI took power. Uh, in fact, it was clear and obvious for Moroccans and also for the international community that his style was different from his father's. Of the former king, Hassan II, and space and room were given to civic society forces and to political parties to play a more important role 
in the democratic transition. In 2009, there was like a slight going back of this free space that was given to political parties and to civil society. And in 2011, it was clear that it was an opportunity to stop that process and to come back to a new era where civil society can work and develop its activities. So luckily, in my opinion, luckily that we have the 20 February Arab Spring period, the same civic space shrinking attitude that was observed in 2009 is coming back in motion. I can give you a, a, a recent example with the popular boycott movement that so daylight, like five, six months or seven months from now, um, it was truthfully forbidden any CSO to organize debates, conferences about this topic. They don't want people to be talking about that. And it's been a really weird boycott movement because besides the fact that we don't know who's behind that, because it started online, you can't predict where is it going, and you can't predict the consequences. Economically speaking, politically speaking, the government has been like babysitting Moroccans over this, and also by not allowing intermediation between civil society and governmental officials to try to work a solution, because uh, private firms are taking the hit, economically speaking. There are Moroccan families who are getting hurt now financially because of this boycott. And still now, we don't know what's happening, who is doing this, and why is this even taking place from the beginning. So it's more profound than that. And I can say that this boycott event in itself represents how Morocco is doing right now. Things are not clear, things are foggy, and you don't know who is making decisions. It's a patronizing system where you have a paternal way of, of leading Morocco, but not a very participatory and democratic way. That is fantastic. That is extremely thorough and very, very helpful. Um, I have a couple more questions related more to the period since uh, 2011. You yeah. had mentioned there was a push for reform around corruption and some of the way that the economy was structured. What was that impact that civil society was able to have to bring about some of those reforms? I think that no regulations or laws were, were adopted by the government that came from civil society. There are only laws and regulations that got stopped from being executed because of the pressure of civil society. I will give you an example. In 2015, the Ministry of Trade and Digital Development proposed the new digital code that was going to regulate Moroccans' behavior on online platforms. Your behavior online could be now reprehended based on this digital code. But it was also very restrictive of individual rights, and especially given your opinion about political facts. For example, if you, if, if you tweet something that was going to accuse falsely some government official, you could be sued for that. It was something totally illogical because you would be suing like half of the Moroccan population. A huge digital and online protest movement put pressure on the ministry itself that it ended by not adopting that code. So this is something that got stopped because of the civic pressure online. All these events show us that the Moroccan civil society is alive, is strong, but it's like they 
have this limited zone of action where you have a margin of freedom of speech, freedom to protest, freedom to gather, but without any real mechanisms where you can have a say in your country's economic, political, and social decision. It's like fighting someone who is much more bigger than you, and when you meet a strong guy who has muscles who is much bigger than you, you just keep shouting and gathering protests and uh, pointing in his direction, but you can't fight because you don't have the institutional mechanisms to do that. Civil society needs and to grow more stronger. And in order for that to be done, we need support from our government, but we also need support from international actors who are willing to reinforce the capacities of Moroccan NGOs. And I'm afraid that the number of strong Moroccan NGOs who are working professionally has been reduced because of the huge administrative procedures. So civic space is shrinking, and it's not only in Morocco, but in other, all the Arab countries, civic society organizations need to be more stronger, more tougher, and they need to work on their internal capacities in order to, to, to make impact. Now, it's more harder to have impact than before. It was easier to have impact in 2011, 2013. Now, you need to put very much effort, money, and energy into it before having the impact you're, you're looking for. Wow, yeah, no, that's that's a great analysis. And it's really interesting to hear a little bit about that, the closing space, as, as much as that's a, a theme globally. I wanted to ask a question around the Constitution that you mentioned. You mentioned that there's limited spheres for citizens to be involved, that there's you know challenges around acquiring and getting into and having an impact on institutional resources. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the impact of the 2011 Constitution might have changed um, participatory democracy within Morocco? On paper, when you read the Constitution, it's like one of the most advanced ones in the, in the MENA region. Once you read it, you see that this country is really on its trail to become a good, solid democracy in like 20, 25 or 30 years. It's like they are a regular institution. You have good solid text background, but when it comes to people who need to translate the overall big ideas into small tactical operational decisions, this is where the machine is not always enough. And this is the part that is making our democratic transition slower. For example, on paper, the Constitution allows citizens to to submit petitions, to submit law regulations. It allows the parliament to seize the government. So official mechanisms that could be taken advantage from to reinforce your democratic transitions are not being used fully because in order to do that, you need courageous men and women inside political parties and institutions to take advantage of this constitution. Why is that? Once you start doing that, you will be facing resistance. Once you start doing that, you're going to bother some very highly ranked people. The only way you're going to do that is when you find someone who is willing to take the hit and to take advantage of this constitution and try to, you know, put things on, on a good trail. And God knows that the actual Moroccan political parties, they are not producing men and women who are going to take this responsibility. So the lack of political leadership and 
political courage is something that we're missing right now in Morocco because, as you mentioned, on paper, the 2011 constitution is really interesting with a lot of margins and a lot of space to build strong institutions. But on the other hand, this government hasn't put a lot, a lot of action, a lot of thoughts, and a lot of decisions. The situation is, is very afraid of, of change. Because change comes with a price, and right now there are no big figures in the Moroccan elite who are willing to take the hit. So let's shift a little bit to some of the work you're doing right now. You have mentioned the gap between citizens and government officials a few times. And as I understand it, that's something that your organization, SimSim Participación Citoyen, is currently working on. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about um, your organization? Our main vision is to use new technologies to enhance civic participation of citizens. So all the projects we're involved in are citizen participation-oriented, and we try as hard as we can to involve the use of new technologies. For example, nuwabook.ma. So nuwabook.ma is the first online platform that allows citizens to correspond directly and freely with their parliamentary deputies. Till now, on nuwabook.ma, we've got 84 active MPs who accepted questions from citizens and answered them back. To give you official statistics, last year we received 172 questions from citizens from more than 23 Moroccan cities. 43% of the questions got answered. The others are and they wait to be answered, I hope, very soon. They try to answer as hard as they can, given the limited resources and time that they have. We even sometimes take transportation to the parliamentary assembly to meet them and try to get their answers so that the citizens have their feedback as soon as possible. So it's a safe space where citizens can address directly their MPs. It wasn't the case before in Morocco because even before Nuevo, if citizens want to talk with their MPs, they will have to join them in their local offices that not all of them create. Some of them have local offices, the others are totally unreachable. So it's a first step in order to enhance accountability. You need to answer to the people who elected you. And I tell this to people in our events and our partners, because of our vote, you got to be there inside the parliamentary institution. The, the least that you can do is to answer my question when I ask you, what are you working on right now? So it's a first step into putting in motion this accountability between citizens and their parliamentary deputies. Well, JT, give us, give us some three takeaways. Let's, let's talk about some of the takeaways we have from this episode. So the first takeaway is that Morocco is a country in progress, pointing specifically to the recent decentralization reforms, 
that are really driving this country's evolution and bringing about real change in terms of governance. Uh, I think the constitutional reforms also are significant and should be looked at. Um, but really, you go through a reform process, you put a lot of laws and words on paper. Um, how does it translate into real life? How do people feel the impact on the ground? Um, I think that is still a question that is out there, and it's certainly something that um, Moroccans are encouraged to continue looking for and pushing for. Uh, reform is a continual process. Definitely. Along those same lines, the country is really right now presented with a great opportunity to develop uh, robust democratic institutions and encourage greater participation in its democracy. The reason reforms push civil society and elected officials to be much more engaged with average Moroccans. And in response, the development community needs to encourage these connections and help leverage them into democratic outcomes. So the third takeaway really deals with the country's success, um, which is important and, and really has wide implications for the region. Popularly driven reforms have occurred more gradually in Morocco than other Arab Spring countries. However, if Morocco continues to progress, I think, on this path, it could serve as a regional model for democratization without revolution, which, of course, is something that has, to that has to occur in ideal conditions. Morocco, at times, has had these conditions. So we'll see how this moves forward, but the model is something to look at. Definitely. Completely agree. Well, to wrap it all up, we'd really like to thank our guest. Uh, Great guest today. Well, we'd like to thank Amara. Uh, he provided us an excellent on-the-ground view uh, from the development and implementing community's perspective on kind of how some of these reforms can be supported. You can get more information from him on Twitter at ID Crooms. Of course, Dr. Yerkes, uh, a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and an avid Morocco watcher, um, really providing us with clear and concise overview and perspective of civil society centralization reforms. You can follow Dr. Yerkes' work uh, at Sarah E. Yerkes uh, on Twitter. And finally, thanks to Ayman Chiragi, uh, who is the Moroccan activist we had with us today, and he has great insight on the recent reforms and recent changes that have been going on in Morocco, going back to the Arab Spring and even before. You can, you can follow more of him at Aymani Cherragi, that's at A-I-M-A-N-E-C-H-E-R-R-A-G-U-I. And also, don't forget to check out his organization at SimSimPCM. That's at S-I-M-S-I-M-P-C-M. Well, as always, we like to leave our listeners with a hint for what's coming down the pike next. JT, what do we have coming up? The president of this next country is also nicknamed the Crocodile, a name drawn from a youth gang that he was a part of back under colonial times to conduct acts of sabotage. Who is this person and what is the country? If you get it right, tweet it at us, email it to us, leave it in our comment section. We might mention your name on air and send the Crocodile to your house.